As was mentioned, today is kind of the start of a new series. Uh, the series is entitled uh, Counterfeit Gods. And uh, I admit that that title is not you, you, uh, original with me. I got that title from this book by uh, Timothy Keller, uh, entitled Counterfeit Gods. And I read this book a while back and uh, was personally convicted and also blessed by it. And as I went through it, I thought this would be a great thing for all of us uh, to, to study together. It's really a book about idolatry. And uh, sometimes we think of idolatry as a thing of the past. That idolatry was done by primitive people uh, long ago who were bowing down to statues of wood and stone. And if we think of idolatry like that, we are badly mistaken Because I think we live in a very idolatrous culture today. We live in a world that idolatry is so pervasive around us that oftentimes we do not even recognize it. Uh, There there is the pursuit of things that can rise up in our hearts that could easily become uh, idols. Things like money and power and material... uh, uh, material wealth and, and uh, possessions, things like sex and lust and romance and uh, the pursuit of achievement and accomplishment, and, it, and the list could go on and on. And think, in fact, these things are so pervasive in our culture that they, can, that they can sneak into our own hearts. Even as followers of Jesus, these things can sneak into our own hearts unrecognized and begin to take priority in our lives in such a way that they, that they drive us forward in how we live more than Jesus Himself. And that in itself is a definition of an idol. It is a misplaced love. You see, the uh, idolatry is not only pervasive in our culture, And it is not only a danger that we could have in our own hearts. I think it is actually the central message of the Bible itself. Because what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And idolatry is a misplaced love that loves something else more than God Himself. And that is why this is the first of the Ten Commandments that you are to have no other gods before God. And this is something that we ought to take very seriously. If this is the message of the Bible and this is the culture that we live in, we must take time to examine our own hearts to see if things have risen up, even good things. And this is where it will be challenging for us in the, over the next couple of weeks. In fact, all of the things I've even listed already are good things in and of themselves. The problem is that we exalt those things to a place they should not be. And that is a major problem. Because I think if we are willing to humble ourselves and to be vulnerable to God, at least this has been my experience as I have studied these things. I've recognized in my own heart things that could easily uh, become idols if they are not already so. And and so it is a challenge for all of us. Idols are those things that we place at the center of our lives because we think that they will give us significance, security, 
safety and fulfillment if we were just able to obtain them. If we could just get this, if we could just get that, if we could uh, uh, bring this or that into our lives, whether it be a relationship, something, uh, that, uh, something physical that we want, or the pursuit of a desire, if I could just have that, then finally I would be, uh, then finally I would be filled with significance, security, safety, and fulfillment. And the problem is that that is a counterfeit God. You see, we talk about counterfeit money. And uh, counterfeit money are these bills that they look very valuable. We think we could buy a lot with it. We could think we could uh, uh, get what we wanted. But the problem with a counterfeit bill uh, is that it actually doesn't have any value. And it won't buy us anything because it's fake. And these things that are idols are counterfeit gods. They promise so much. They look like they have so much value. They'll provide so much meaning and significance and importance in our lives, but they are empty promises. And they cannot provide what uh, God alone is able to provide, that He alone is able to give us our identity and our joy. And we're going to talk about that this morning. But I hope all of this uh, resonates in our hearts. As I said, I'm sure I will uh, give you a little glimpse and pieces of how the Lord has been working in my heart as I've studied these things myself. But my challenge to all of us this morning, and this is my prayer for us throughout this series, is that we would be humble and that we would be vulnerable before God and ask Him to reveal within our own hearts anything that uh, could rival our love for God. And that God would uh, reveal those things to us and give us the strength to surrender them to Him. In fact, I know J.R. prayed for our sermon already, but I just I want to take a minute and pray for us again that God would bless us and uh, guide us not only in today's message, but in the growth groups as, a, as we study through these things and through this upcoming series. So let's just pause uh, one more time and commit these things to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we pray now that you would come and meet us, that by your Spirit you would teach us and that you would work in our hearts and convict us, that you would fill us, with, what that, with those things that only you can provide, with the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that can come only from life in you, and that you would focus our hearts and our minds that we might be able to find our identity in you. We come before you humbly because we know that the task before us is difficult, and we ask and pray that you would guide our way. Come and speak to us now through your word and throughout this series through the growth groups that meet around it, through uh, the, the upcoming sermons. May it all be used for your glory. We just invite you to come and do the hard work of helping us to put to death idols in our, heart, in our hearts. It's not easy. In fact, it is oftentimes painful. But God, we give you the permission and we ask that you would give us the strength to be able to do that. And so we invite your uh, spirit now to come and move among us. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a uh, birth announcement in the mail this week. Exciting times, right? I love getting news like this. Hello world from a little baby named Isaac. 
And the thing that got me excited, not only would I get excited about any time I would get a birth announcement by this, but you know who the mother is? The mother is not a young woman or a newlywed. This baby was born to a 90-year-old woman. Can you believe that? A 90-year-old woman had this baby. Now, uh, Daniel's given me the, the, st- the stink eye, <laughs> and he's right. If you believe that, please come and talk to me after the service. You're a little bit too gullible. Uh, but, the, but the reason I wanted to do that is because I, ma- I want us to help uh, us to look at the biblical text with these kind of eyes. This is remarkable, the story that we're going to look at this morning. There's a woman in the Bible uh, by the name of Sarah who has a son uh, named Isaac at the age of 90. Can you imagine that? It is a a miracle. It's quite the story. In fact, I want us to just get wrapped up in this story because as we study it, we're going to recognize that there are lessons in this that we need to take and use to examine our own hearts. It's a story about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is such an important person in world history. In fact, if you look at the three monotheistic religions in the world, all of them, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, all claim Abraham to be the father of their religion. And this is the story about Abraham. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And uh, Abraham in this passage is given a miraculous promise And as we read this, I want you to uh, notice the promise and also notice the circumstances around the promise. How old he is and the the amount of faith that it must have taken to believe in this. Genesis 12, 1 through 5. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the, people that, the, the, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the, for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So this is the promise that is given uh, to Abraham, that, he would, that the, his descendants would become a great nation, and that uh, he would be blessed by God and that uh, to have many children a great nation, and all the peoples of the earth would be blessed by his descendants. In fact, if we go on and read the story, the promise promise is given this beautiful imagery that his uh, children would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And there's only one problem. He doesn't have any children. And he's already, in this passage, 75 years old. I can't imagine uh, the amount of faith that it took for him to believe in the promise of God, but that is what he had. He packed up everything and left what he knew. He left and he left his family. He left all behind uh, in light of this promise. That is how much he so. That is how badly he wanted this promise to be true in his life. To have a son, a firstborn son, was so, would have been so valuable for him. <clears throat> 
Now, children obviously mean a lot to us today. We call them bundles of joy for a reason. But in the ancient world, children were not only bundles of joy. The firstborn son represented the whole family. Now, for us to understand the story and where we're going, it's important to have some background information. So, so take this in for a moment. The firstborn son, it was on the firstborn son's that, son that the, that the hopes and the dreams of a family rested. The firstborn son was their source of security within the, within the uh, community. And that's the reason why the firstborn son received the large majority of a family's inheritance. Because all the hope was being placed, all their security and identity was being placed on, on this man. And now it's also crucial to understand the faith aspect of this, that the firstborn son was the source of the family's salvation before God. This is how the ancient uh, world understood this, that the firstborn son was the family's salvation before God. And so the son would be a dedication, would be dedicated to the Lord so that they could have a relationship with God. It is through the firstborn son that the whole family could belong to God because the firstborn son belonged to the Lord. This was the world in which Abraham lived. And so he packed up everything and moved based on, having, based on the promise of having a son. But the thing is, the promise didn't come to fruition right away. In fact, a year passed, and then another year, and decades began to pass. And it wasn't until uh, Abraham was 100 years old that God came and he repeated the promise to him. In, Je- in Genesis 17, Abraham, uh, God comes back to Abraham and tells him, you will be the father of many nations. And your uh, descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Sarah, his wife, is in a tent nearby, overhears the promise, and laughs out loud. As we would as well. It's, re- it's, it's as ridiculous as getting a birth announcement in the mail from a, from a 90-year-old woman. And that's how old Sarah was at the time. And even though Sarah had a hard time believing the promise Somehow Abraham did believe, and it, was credited, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and eventually the bump on Sarah's stomach began to form. And she gave birth to a son whom they named Isaac. Isaac means laughter. I'm sure it represented not only the laughter that Sarah had in the tent nearby, but it represented all the joy that filled their hearts. Can you imagine how much joy Abraham must have had when he held little baby, baby Isaac in his arms? How long he, how, uh, for how long he had uh, wanted this promise to come true. How much he cherished this little baby that this was the hope of a whole nation. And then when Isaac is 12 years old, God comes to Abraham this time with a different type of message. In Genesis 22, we read, and can you just begin to envision what must have been taking pl- what must been must have been happening in Abraham's heart and mind. Genesis 22 verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, God 
tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Notice how Isaac is described in this passage. Your son, your only son, uh, whom you love. Can you imagine the despair that must have filled his heart? The sadness that God is calling for his son to be put to death as a sin offering? I want to make a couple uh, lessons here from this passage. And this is the first. That uh, what is being done in, in Abraham's life is ultimately, I'm going to point out that this is an act of grace because there is a danger that is taking place in his life. The danger it, uh, could be a danger for us as well. The danger for Abraham and for us is when someone or something becomes our greatest source of joy and identity. And that is what I think the danger that was happening in Abraham's heart. You see, he loved this little baby Isaac. He gave this baby, uh, he gave this boy everything the boy could want. He gave him all the best presents, held huge birthday parties. This little boy was so important to him. He was the child of the promise. But there was a danger there that maybe Isaac and the importance of Isaac would rise up in Abraham's heart to take place above God himself to the point where Isaac now was becoming his identity and joy. You see, that's a danger that can happen for all of us, that things can rise up into our hearts. Even good things, things as good as our own children, can rise up within our own hearts to be our primary source of identity and joy. I've seen it happen with people's families. I've seen it happen with people's work. I've seen it happen with uh, desires within people's hearts, even within my own. Those things can rise up so important that they supplant God at the top of the pyramid. And this is a danger that was in uh, Abraham's life. It's a danger that we must all be aware of. Now, I know this story is hard for us to understand. What in the world is God doing? It sounds like murder, doesn't it? To go and to uh, kill your own son? See, uh, I'm going to try to explain this the best that I can. And I admit, this is hard for us to understand because it's a culture radically different than the world we live in. But we've got to go back to that, uh, that background information that we've already given, that the firstborn son belonged to God and represented the family. And in light of that, if the firstborn son belonged to God and represented the family, and the family was not right before the Lord, God could call forth that child as a sacrifice Uh, for sin. And it would have been fair and it would have been justified. To help us out along these lines, I want to quote from uh, the book Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. Keller says, the firstborn son was the family. 
So when God told the Israelites that the firstborn's uh, life belonged to him unless ransomed, he was saying in the most vivid way possible in those cultures that every family on earth owed a debt, of, a debt to eternal justice, the debt of sin. And that is what's being, that's what's happening in this story. God's calling for his debt to be paid. And the only logical person that could pay that debt would be the firstborn son who represented the whole family. That son belonged to God already, so it wasn't murder God was asking for. In Abraham's mind, it was fair and justified. Again, Keller writes, the Bible repeatedly states that because of the Israelites' sinfulness, the lives of their firstborn are automatically forfeit. Though they might be redeemed through, a regu- through regular sacrifice or through, the, or through service at the tabernacle among the Levites or through a ransom payment to the tabernacle and the priests. All that to say is it, if we are able to understand that it makes sense why Abraham willingly went up the mountain. It makes sense logically. In our hearts it might not make sense, but in our minds we might begin to understand it. And so the Bible says, early the next morning, Abraham rose, rose with the sun and loaded up his donkey with all that was needed in this, for sacrifice. And he and Isaac made their way up the mountain. When they arrived at the place where they, are, where they were to make the sacrifice, Isaac innocently asks, Dad, where is the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham replies, Surely God will provide. No glimpse in, into what uh, Abraham was really planning to do to, to and with his son. But I actually don't think Abraham's answer is deceptive. In fact, what I think we get here is a glimpse into his thinking. And this is the next thing that is crucial for us to understand. Abraham's message is this, that God is both holy and gracious. Abraham knew that God was holy, and and that is what moved him to obey. He knew that he stood sinful before God. He knew that it was right to offer, uh, to demand a sacrifice for sin. But at the same time, he also knew that God was gracious, that God somehow would provide for them. And if Abraham would not have known of God's grace, he would also not have had the strength to obey God. It's not until the New Testament that we get a glimpse into what uh, Abraham was thinking uh, of how God's grace would be played out. Hebrews 11.19 says, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. You see, Abraham was going to sacrifice his son with the thought that God's going to raise him back up from the dead, a resurrection from the dead. It's quite a radical thought, but it shows uh, Abraham's faith in God. Now, in light of that, I think that these are twin truths that we must hang on to if we are to put the idols in our own lives uh, to death. We must believe that God is, first of all, holy. That God deserves to receive all of our worship. 
that He is so holy and perfect that it would be, that it would be slanderous for anything else to take place, uh, to take the place in our hearts of where God should dwell. God is holy and He is also gracious. It is His grace that we hope, uh, it is in His grace that we hope and find trust and find strength to trust Him and to obey Him, to put to death those idols in our hearts, knowing that it is out of His grace that He is ultimately able to provide what our hearts are longing for. The call to sacrifice uh, Isaac was also a test for Abraham. Let me remind you of what Genesis 22.1 says. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. But it wasn't a test for God to acquire knowledge. It was a test for Abraham to acquire knowledge. You see, this was a call for Abraham to look within his own heart and to see what the danger that may dwell there. It was a call for Abraham to, uh, to make, to make no misplaced desires or hope. It was a call for Abraham to recognize that his love for his son may have become greater than his love for God himself and that he was placing on his son all the hopes for his identity and his joy. And a person cannot handle that kind of load. In fact, if we place that on any individual, it's far too great of a a burden for them to bear. And so I call this test for Abraham a refiner's fire. In fact, it kind of comes from the song that we just sang this morning. Abraham's test was a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire threatens our idols, threatens to destroy the things in our lives that are so valuable and important to us so that our love for God may be pure and singular. So we might love Him purely and, and, uh, and Him alone. The song we sang says, Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart from you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. Now, refiner's fires are never pleasant at the time. They hurt because they're burning the things that are, that are central in our hearts and lives. And I know in my own life, when those things that are so important to me, even desires I have, feel like they're being attacked. And it might be by criticism from, another, from someone else. It might be from difficulty in my own life. Whatever the attack may be, it hurts. In fact, uh, we may uh, lay awake at night and dwell on these things. Why? Because it is hard to put those things to death. But it hurts also because we come to the realization that that these things will never be able to provide what they promise. That as much as I want this or that to happen, it is outside of my control. And even if it were to happen, it would not provide me with what would ultimately bring satisfaction to my own heart. And so idols are empty promises they are counterfeit gods. They, they do not hold the value that they promise. Here's my application question for today. 
what is in your life, what in your life has become or could become an idol for you. Take a minute and think about that. Ask God. May, and in fact, I've included room in your sermon note. You might, sermon notes. You might even jot something down. I think of those things that give tremendous joy, that get us up in the morning, that get us excited, that are central to our lives. They might point to something that could th- uh, be an idol in our own hearts. And then I also think of those things that get us worked up, that get us angry when they don't go the way that we want them to, that we get frustrated with that person or we get discouraged that we can't have this or that, those things that keep us awake at night, those things that disturb our hearts, those things, I think, uh, really point to the things that could be idols in our own lives. I invite you to imagine, what are those things that all my uh, identity and my joy and my hope rest upon, what are those things that get me worked up if they, are not prov- uh, if they do not come to fruition? They may be relationships, like Isaac to Abraham. They may be material things. They may be desires or pursuits in our own lives. Now, the ironic thing is sometimes when we put those idols to death, they remain in our lives. In fact, many of the things that we can uh, uh, make into idols We cherish because they're such good things. It's a displaced love that is the problem. And so if those things uh, remain in our lives, the constant challenge is to put them under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Tim Keller defines an idol this way. It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Now, Abraham had this test before him, and he could travel one of two paths. The first I want to call a path of despair and anger. And when we come face to face with the idols in our lives, this is a path we could easily take. In fact, this is a well-worn path. A lot of times when we are tested to put idols to death in our lives, we can opt for despair and anger and bitterness. We look to blame others for why we didn't get what we wanted or why the idols in our lives couldn't provide what we hoped for. We can become angry with God for not giving us what we wanted and not satisfying our hearts when we, when, uh, uh, when we get what we wanted. Abraham could have walked this path, the path of despair and anger, when he was called to sacrifice his life, uh, his son. He could have said, why, God, I've already sacrificed so much. I've left my family. I've left my homeland. I've left it all behind. How many people have ridiculed me for believing in your promise, and this is what you give me? The path of confrontation with the idols in our lives can easily lead to despair and anger. In fact, that is the most common path that people take. But there is a second path, a better path. Ultimately, it is the path that Abraham chose. It is the path of sacrifice and satisfaction. 
It is a path of sacrificing our idols and finding our satisfaction in God alone. The second path is to walk up the mountain as Abraham did and to give to God any idols in our lives. We can name them, look directly at them, and surrender them to God, putting them to death as an act of sacrificial worship unto the Lord. And if we walk that path, we may say something like this. I see that you, God, may be calling me to live my life without something I never thought I could live without. But if I have you, I have the only wealth, honor, health, love, and security I really need. Is alone, God, that I could never live without. And so these are the two paths. And they make all the difference in the world. My challenge for us this morning is, where will we find our identity and joy? I want to do one more exercise before we transition to the, uh, commun- before we transition to the Lord's table. There are, some pa- there are some white claws on the inside of the pews. You're going to take one of those, keep it, and pass the rest. And, uh, and I realize I, I didn't get white claws to the corners. So if you've got extras, uh, take them to the corners of the sanctuary. I want everyone to have a white cloth. There's white claws on the table in the foyer if you want to uh, make sure those that are in the foyer get a cloth as well. This... Uh, if you don't have enough in your row, raise your hand. Do you need an extra? Does everyone have one? Okay, we need one, one right here. If I can get an extra one here. Um, and, then we're, and then I think we're good. Uh, this white cloth is meant to be symbolic. This represents something. This represents God's truth and love. You see, I've become convinced that the only way we are really able to put to death idols in our lives is when we find our identity in God, in Christ. And so this morning what I want us to do is I'm going to speak to you God's truth and grace and His uh, joy for you. And, at, and at, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to place this on your shoulders. And this is going to be God's truth and love over you. You see, the problem is we've got all kinds of things resting on our shoulders that are heavy burdens. We cannot bear them. We, we, uh, we crumble under the weight of them. That is why so many are led down the path of despair and anger. They are never meant to provide what we hope they provide. It is only when we find our identity and joy in Jesus and His truth over us that our hearts will ultimately be satisfied. And so my hope is that as we go through this series, we're going to look at one idol after another. 
And in each of these things, we're just going to call out the lies and say we cannot live under those things. It is only under the truth and love of God. It is Christ's imputed righteousness that rests upon our shoulders so that we might receive from Him the only things that can provide satisfaction from our hearts, for our hearts. So put this on your shoulders now. Again, you may feel silly. This is all symbolic, and that's okay. But the reality is the truth behind the message is so powerful. And in fact, it is, it is the only way that we are to uh, receive what Jesus said He came to offer us. And that is abundant life. Abundant life is only found when we are able to put to death the idols in our lives and receive the truth and the love of God. And so this is Jesus' words to you this morning. Jesus says to you that you are His child. That His righteousness is now placed over you and all of your sins are washed away by the blood that was shed on the cross. Jesus tells you right now, saying, you are His beloved. And in you, He takes great delight. His desire is to fill your life with joy. And His love for you is greater than anything else, more than what anything else could provide for you. And so He says to you, I love you and I cherish you so much. I want nothing but the best for you. I give you my life. And my life is abundant life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. That you love us so much. We recognize that there are lies swirling around us all the time that promise this or that. These idols that we can form in our own hearts will lead us down a path of despair and anger if they are not a sacrifice to you. So God, thank you for the truth that rests upon our shoulders right now. And I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your love and your grace to us. May we find our identity and joy in you alone. And may you give us the strength to be able to put to death in our lives any idols that might rise up in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.